quite sure what will be possible today, but um, I would like to introduce the fourth exercise, which could be, as I'll explain when I get to it, could be seen as two exercises. Uh, I'd like to introduce that, maybe um, the fifth one. But before even introducing the fourth, I just thought I'd spend a little time opening up and considering some of the words and the vocabulary we've been using by now it's quite familiar to a lot of you um, who are familiar with soul making dharma teachings some of these words and some of these terms particularly as they uh, inform and inflect and open up our sense of human being and our human person and personhood and what it is to be a person uh, so just, just want to say a few things about about that. Mm, a few weeks ago, not very long ago, uh, two or three weeks ago, um, I was trying to remember the actual details, and I can't remember exactly what it was that I was feeling really quite pressured about, and uh, I'm going to say... Uh, thrown off centre, unbalanced, pressured, flattened. Um, but there were a lot of things that needed seemed like they needed deciding at the time. Uh, practical things, things in, in relation to preparing for death and my will and um, future of the teachings and teacher training and all kinds of things. A lot of things that needed seemed to need figuring out and arranging uh, before my death, excuse me, and um, and within that there were, it seemed, lots of pe- different people's uh, requests and opinions and voices in there, and yes, can't remember exactly what it is, but it was to do with th- those kinds of things, and particularly in, in relation to the, the teachings and the future of the teachings and teachers and things like that. Um, but at some point I realized that that, I'm really not feeling okay with all this. It's all gotten a bit crazy. And the language that came to me, or the language that would seem very natural at that point, um, to describe what was missing, uh, for myself at that point, and that language also very insightful, but but it came very naturally. Um, it was not the language of I've lost my center, as I said a minute ago, whatever, um, or I'm uncentered, or I need to get centered, I need to regain my center or center myself or whatever. That wasn't the language that came. And I would understand, of course, you know those kinds of situations and that kind of feeling flustered and pulled in so many directions and so many decisions and all that, that would very easily be a way that someone, that we in our contemporary society might um, describe to ourselves what ne- what has happened and then what needs to happen. But the words that came, the description that came organically, naturally, spontaneously, and 
that contain, of course, the, 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 the insight, the seeds of insight for what I needed to do to redress the situation was that I've, I've lost my connection with the angels. I lost my connection with the daemon. And I need to somehow reconnect, find that connection again with the angel, with the daemon, with the image. And that, uh, as I said, it, the, the insight was there. In the description of the problem was the insight uh, of the direction needed for a solution. Where I needed to orient, what I needed to do, how I needed to look, how I needed to relate and think about things. And that was uh, exactly what, what did indeed help. Finding again uh, this, these connections with the angels in relation to uh, all this, all that was difficult and the sort of what was at the middle, the, the pith of, of the difficulty in relation to the teachings, basically, because it was all seemed most of it centered around the teachings and the future of the teachings and all that stuff. And so finding my connection again, finding again my connection with the angels in my relationship with them in relation to the teachings. So all of that. And that's what had got lost. And I was trying to figure out, solve, find answers to um, get through a lot of decisions and things that needed to be made. And it all felt quite pressured. But I had lost that connection. I'd gone into a much more uh, uh, one-dimensional mode of understanding that and relating to all that set of issues and decisions and problems and conundrum. It was all one-dimensional. It was not uh, the angel wasn't there. I wasn't in relationship with the angel with all of that. So when a person today, you know, uses language like um, need to, lost my center, need to get centered or centered myself or find my center, regain my center, what does that word kind of tend to imply? Or what's wrapped up in that kind of notion, in that kind of vocabulary? And particularly what's wrapped up, what does it tend to imply about the, about the human being and about the self? and about the person. What's the logos, the conceptual framework of human being, self, person, that is kind of implicitly tied in with um, a notion such as centering? So, there's probably quite a few, and it's not set in stone, and it might may vary, etc., but you could, could think about a few of them. For instance, interiority is one of them. Generally, not not necessarily, but generally. The centre of gravity, my centre of gravity, and therefore my sense of uh, balance, my point of balance, is conceived then usually within, somehow within me. So, uh, here I, one's feeling perhaps pulled out, so to speak, to all these, uh, in all these diverse uh, to all these diverse distractions or pulls or demands or questions or whatever it is, needs. And the center of gravity, the still point, the balance point, is conceived of as within, usually. So there's a kind of interiority there 
um, that goes that's part of the conceptual framework of the human being that goes with words like centering and notions like centering perhaps secondly also is perhaps a notion of circumscription of the human being of the self like where do I end I end here the world starts there or you start there or whatever it is so when we talk about a centre, it's about a centre of something. Usually it's a centre of a circle, a centre of a geometrical structure, or whatever it is. Centre of a limited space, a limited area. Centre of a country, whatever. So there's a, a, a delimited space, a circumscribed space. Where I end, that's my boundary, if you like. That's my border. That notion also seems wrapped up kind of subtly, implicitly with the notion of centering. Now, I could still have an, a, a kind of circumscribed notion of where I end. Uh, that could still be involved if, um, in, when I use the language and idea of connection with the daemon, connection with the angel. But what I meant and what I mean by that. Uh, what I would like to emphasize right now by that connection with the angels is, uh, and refinding that connection with the angel, or angels, is more a kind of uh, expanded notion or sense of a human being. And as we talked about, I think it was in the talk on death and dying in, uh, in, in Psyche's Orchard. Uh, rather than... Um, uh, rather than this, uh, this this area is me. Um, we have a sense of the larger human being is both image and analog. Okay, so there's a couple of parts there. This is the first part is to do circumscription. The second part is to do singularity. But just to stay with circumscription. Image and analog, and I in my life, um, to the best of my ability, or more or less at different times, the analog of that image, of the angel. And uh, where, where then do I end? If I have this more expanded notion of. Uh, of, of self. I am actually this whole um, system is too technical a word, but this whole gestalt, this whole um, constellation of image and analog, and maybe images and analogs, and that's all me. Then where do I end in that? Where is my circumscription in that exactly? And anyway, then, um, the image. Uh, because the elements of the imaginal, the angel, the image, where does the image end? Because that's going to be unfathomable and have unfathomable beyonds, etc. Um, where do I draw the line then of self there? Of my human being? And so where then exactly is the center of it? 
if I can't uh, draw the line of the edge of the circle or whatever, I don't know where to place the center. I don't. I cannot say the center is here or there. So that's that's another aspect: interiority, circumscription, but also, as I mentioned, uh, singularity. Sometimes, usually, with this notion of centering, in the sense of the uh, the singularity of self. I need to find my center. I, as a singular self, need to kind of have recourse to myself, find the resource of my, find my resource in myself, in my center. And the sense then is the self as singular. Now, a person in contemporary society, of course, could say, I feel terrible, I feel really pressured, I reach out to friends and colleagues or whatever it is, and, and reaching out horizontally to, uh, socially, horizontally, so, uh, to the horizontal sense of society and, and friends, etc. But one could also reach out more, more uh, plurally, if you like, not so much just to the singular self, not only reaching out horizontally to the flatly conceived um, society of others in which I exist, but uh, rather conceiving of the self as a plurality. So this, just the fact of conceiving of the human being, conceiving of the human person, as I described and tried to really emphasize in that talk on death and dying, conceiving of the human person actually, phenomenologically, and when we have a deep sense both of ourselves and of another, and when another has a deep sense of ourselves, that the experience is is not necessarily completely singular. And I don't mean it's fragmented in uh, in uh, the, the, the way sometimes Anatta gets taught. But I mean it's plural, uh, or some it, rather not simply singular, in the... A way that we are both image and analog, or images and analogs. Several angels, perhaps, and servant to analog to uh, that plurality even of angels. So, quite different notions there. Interiority, circumscription and borders, and singularity... Are, are not the sort of the default mode of, of sense of the human being, the human person. And they weren't in that case, and as I find more and more these days when things are difficult, when there's challenge, different ways, that, that the sense, and I mean that word in its, in, in its double meaning, the sense, the, the actual perception and the idea, of my human being or another human being is not so much uh, is more along the lines of this image and analog of having angelic dimensions which are refracted into uh, the human life more or less at different times with a duty to that there's a kind of doubleness there if you like so um, it's also not, of course, and we think about centering, that word centering, take a fourth 
uh, aspect or, or fourth um, notion that might be wrapped up in it or idea that might be wrapped up in centering is that one then encounters oneself or one's true self or one's core, if you like, or whatever, at the center. And introspecting, one then finds oneself at the center. And, uh, you know, sort of, maybe not Dharma 101, but pretty soon in the Dharma, you're going to encounter the idea, and it's not just particular to uh, Buddha Dharma. So when I look for the self, I can't find it, actually. So it's not, we're not talking in, um, uh, one could um, think about centering as, I need to center because I need to encounter that self at, the, at my center. Or it could be that what I'm expecting at the center is a kind of infinite depth of still nothingness, of stillness and nothingness, which is a wonderful sense. One can look inside and just, and there's different kinds of nothingness, different kinds of stillness. But that kind of infinite depth of um, stillness and nothingness is what one maybe encounters at the center. We talk about in the Christian tradition uh, in the 20th century, there was a, a, a re-stimulation, a revivification of, of some of their contemplative practices in the uh, Catholic tradition, centering prayer. And originally, I think it's changed now, but originally it meant just that. In the center is this still nothingness, beyond any image of God, beyond any word or directive or is just just a kind of a kind of emptiness and so this is tied up also with the via negativa the apophatic tradition looking deep inside myself i encounter nothing and that nothingness is is the same the depth of that nothingness is the same as the depth of the nothingness of god so this is wonderful and this is a, a real uh, mystical resource but still meaning something quite different if we're not, if I wasn't gravitating towards that notion and that um, movement of centering and of needing centering. It's not that I'm expecting to encounter myself at the center, nor am I expecting, uh, an, or nor am I kind of hoping for an experience of a still nothingness at the center which may, of course, be very helpful at different times. But rather, um, need to reconnect with the angels. And the angel, the image, is other and itself. It's both and neither. It's me and not me, and it's not me and not not me. This angel, in, their, in the mystery of their being, the mystery of this angelic constellation, this angelic relationship, this angel is both other and self. But it's theophany. It's a face of the divine. It's an expression of the divine. Which is different than an emptiness. An emptiness is not a theophany. And emptiness is taken more taken usually, usually construed as an essence, and this is a uh, a transcend you know usually construed as a transcendent essence beyond all attributes. A theophany is a face, a presentation, 
of, uh, we, we could say, of attributes, or is a being in itself, a person in itself, you could say. So rather than encountering myself at the center, rather than encountering a, uh, a deep well of still nothingness, wonderful as that might be, actually, not at the center, but in relationship with uh, a theophany. Not, uh, not at, the, at the center of anything, but in relationship with. Where exactly is that? In space. So, quite different notions, and some of this will be to different degrees familiar if you're familiar with soul-making dharma. Some of the ways we use these words, and some of really what I'm wanting to point to is where the words point to, the direction of possibility in which the these words and these terms point, as opposed to they they themselves define this or that, and this is the circumscription, this is the limit and definition, delimitation of these words. More to get a sense of this is the this is the the words are are directions. The directions of soul possibility, directions of soul experience and soul conception. And we linger on this word angel a little bit. Uh, we've used it quite a lot over the last years. Um, but just to say a few more thing, a few more things about it. You know, careful, for instance, of a limiting idea that the angel or an angel or an image kind of shows up out of the blue and uh, will help you with something or give you an idea or give you a creative uh, impulse or whatever it is, a seed or something. It might. It might show up out of the blue. And we talked about, and again, I can't remember when, but we talked about, I used the phrase, um, the poise of soul-making or something like that soul-making poise. In other words, um, taking care of the stance, the poise of one's being, one's energy body, one's attention, one's receptivity, one's humility, and all, and all of that. And in that poise, in the soul-making poise, it's a sort of uh, opening the space, priming and preparing the space. Thinking now parallels with the Jewish tradition of of um, preparing for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the reception of the Shekhinah, the reception of the Sabbath angel who who visits, who comes on that evening, on that day. And the human being's job is partly to prepare, to make uh, the space and uh, make the space and the time beautiful, ready, prepared, holy, special, hospitable. So it may well be that we get, we, uh, with an attitude of humility, we, we learn uh, to take care uh, with that soul-making poise. And in that way we are in, in a kind of um, humbly, uh, humbly waiting and uh, 
primed or prepared space, our being becomes that space, becomes a space of hospitality for the angels, and they may visit then, sort of out of the blue, and then with that there may be a gift. We may be helped with this or that in our lives, given something, given an idea, given creative seeds, whatever. But careful of that as an idea that might limit our sense of angels and what they are and how they arise and what our relationship with this, with them is. Because it's often the case, and this is something I've shared before, it's often the case that one has already started something. Perhaps it's a creative project or uh, a, 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 a big piece of work, an, an idea... And perhaps it feels like a lot. It feels uh, like a stretch or a challenge. And the angel comes then. Then, uh, and, and the coming of the angel might be the actual, the work itself, or this project itself becoming imaginal. It becomes angelic. So it might be there's me, and there's this project, and then there's this third character called the angel that's going to help me with in my relationship with the project. But it might also be that the work itself, or the idea that's beginning to take shape, that I'm grappling with, that I'm kind of gestating, or is wanting to come through, whatever it is, or this, this big project that I need to do, whatever that might be, that it becomes angel. <clears throat> it becomes angelic. It becomes imaginal person with autonomy, with uh, desire, its own eros, its own desire, etc. So, uh, careful of, uh, again, not, not delimiting too tightly what we mean by angel. So we have to delimit it in some... We're not just open for any old ideas about angels and all that business. So I said, the, the words, the concepts are pointing us in a direction, they're pointing us along a road, but that road is infinite. It has boundaries. It's not like anything can fall under the, uh, the scope of that road, and we can just call anything angel, which is, you know, in some circles, fairly common. Just use that word too easily, whether it's used completely unspiritually, just as a kind of term of endearment, or, or in certain spiritual New Age circles or whatever. Uh, and we're not using it in those ways. So we're meaning, we're, maybe that's a good analogy, it's like we're pointing in a certain direction, and one can just keep traveling in that direction. And the road changes. The road develops. The terrain around the road develops as, the, as you walk down that road. But another way of saying this is an angel is also, like everything, a dependent arising. So in what I was just talking about, it's almost like, here's the, or we could say in the, in the first instance, it's dependent on the poise of soul-making. The visitation of the Shekhinah and Shabbat is dependent on the reverence and humility and the eros of the soul and the love of the soul for the Shekhinah and for the divine in and and expressing that by the way it takes care of creating the space for the Sabbath. 
terms of the body and house and um, setting and environment. So of course all, all this applies in so many ways to soul making and imaginal work and ritual and all that. But it's dependent arising, an angel is dependent arising also in possibly another sense, which is, as I said, something is already there. It's already stretching me. And then that, then the angel visits in response to that stretch, in response to that task that I'm given, in response to that work that I have to do. And it might be that one possibility within that is that the work itself, the task itself, becomes angel. It becomes imaginal, angelic. So, I've um, touched on this before, actually quite a few times, you know, this question, some people say, oh, I don't get any images, and, or I don't get images, or, um, and sometimes people are okay with that, but sometimes it's like people get a little bit, a little bit frustrated, or why don't I get images? Or they might say, if they use slightly different language, having heard other language being used, they might say, why don't the angels seem to come to me? Why don't they seem to come to other people? Or I hear this person or that person talk about the angels coming or the angel coming or whatever. Why don't they seem to come to me? Or it might be voiced as, excuse me, um, excuse me. It might be, um, the angels, the gods, they don't seem to want anything from me. I hear this person, that person talk, and and I hear them talk about the demand of the angel, the demand of the imaginal, or the duty, or, or this or that. But they don't seem to come to me, or they don't seem to want anything from me. So this whole constellation of... Uh, um, ideas and perceptions and um, things that people might think we talk, I've talked about quite a lot over the years. Why don't I get image and what do we actually mean by image and what are the kind of, um, again, preparations, poises of soul, but also relationships with one's emotions and um, energy body and all, all kinds of <clears throat> other factors that uh, support the generation, the arising, the creation, discovery of images, angels, etc. So there's lots of reasons uh, which I've um, elaborated elsewhere. One I've touched on, uh, just want to touch on again, um, and that actually has to do with desire uh, and need, to, to maybe two, two aspects. So sometimes I say, why don't I... Um, get images. I don't know. Other reasons that I've elaborated elsewhere aside. So there may well be, actually for many people, this isn't a relevant reason, what I'm about to say. Maybe there's just other things there, not relating in the right way to their emotions or whatever it is. But sometimes it's like, actually, if you really, really deeply wanted images they would come. You would, you would uh, have images. Images would visit you. They would arise if you really deeply wanted them. So something, sometimes, for some people, 
the issue is one of desire. And a person who's, oh, why don't I get images? Or they seem to get more. This person seems to get more than I do, or, or whatever. But it may be that actually it's not something we really deeply want. And so they don't, they don't necessarily arise. So maybe, as it's sometimes for some people, that that actually is, is uh, the relevant factor. And, or, and maybe they're related, it might be that for some people at some time, again, this is not going to be relevant to some people, but or in some instances it won't be relevant, but it may be, why don't the angels seem to come to me? Why don't the gods, the angels, seem to want anything from me? It may be that... Um, you and I and the imaginal figures, the angels, don't need each other. They actually don't need each other. They don't need me and I don't need them. They don't need you and you don't need them. Because there's nothing in the way a person is living and the choices that a person is making that needs the help or presence of, of the angels of the imaginal figures. There's nothing really on the line, so to speak. There isn't really a soul stretch. We've touched on this before, if you remember, I can't remember where. There isn't really, they're not living and choosing in their life um, in ways that really stretch their soul or that open them to kind of soul risks, if we might uh, use that phrase. There's nothing really on the line. And they might be stretched in all kinds of ways, might be very busy, might be stretched doing, you know, really something very helpful in the world, whatever. But it's not actually a soul stretch. And there's no real risk there. And maybe it's that the angels, the imaginal figures, the daemons, don't need and won't choose someone who is not willing to stretch stretch themselves, stretch them, li- stretch their lives, stretch their soul. So this is also um, a factor to consider, is that it won't be relevant in a lot of instances, but sometimes it is uh, important to realize this, this is actually what's happening. Well, this is a reason why something is not happening. Um, it may also be that the, and again, this will be even in only perhaps some instances of the instances that I've just talked about uh, where that is the case, it may be that the kind of stretch needed to invite or call forth the angel, the angels, the kind of stretch um, to which they respond Maybe it's uh, it needs to be one which involves or must involve a sense of antinomy. Remember that word from the ethics talks from Cena and Sol and the image of ethics. Uh, antinomy is deeply felt in the soul. And having to choose faced with that antinomy the branches, the roads of their divergent uh, pulls and callings felt sharply, deeply, genuinely in the soul. 
one is almost almost crucified, pulled this way and that by two opposing uh, values, by the love of and the duty of, uh, duty to, to uh, antinom- antinomical values. And it may be that that kind of stretch, that kind of difficulty, um, is is the kind of stretch that sometimes, or, or maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's in every case need, needed, that's part of what it means to be stretched. Maybe there's just, that's a certain kind of stretch, I'm not sure. So all these are things to, I think, ponder. And of course, you know, some people, like I said, it, going back to something I said earlier, well, I might not actually... It might not bother me that much that this sense of angels that I hear people talking about or images um, don't come to me. And if it doesn't, okay, leave it. But if it actually does, then these are things that you might want to include in your kind of inquiry and self-questioning. Um... And just briefly, I uh, heard sort of someone was saying something about soul making dharma, and da, 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 and basically upshot was, or the, one of the pieces was, um, well, I'm sure it's all really great, but I'm very much paraphrasing, but I don't really relate to the word soul. Um, and this was from a person who'd been practicing Dharma a long, long time, she a teacher long, you know, decades and decades um, which is, you know, probably quite a common reaction, I imagine um, not really relating to that word soul at all um, Oftentimes, it's the making that people don't relate to the word making uh, of course if you understand the whole track of exploration of ways of looking and fabrication. Fabrication is just another word for making. And how that deepens and how it opens out and the understanding it opens out, then the word making uh, is almost an indispensable word in uh, soul making. But for a lot of people it's very puzzling because you'd usually put a kind of, you'd usually think of the word soul or have a sense of soul, use that in a very rarefied way. It wouldn't be something that we make it will be something that is, or we discover, or uh, that just um, is a level of being, or, or whatever. Anyway, this person, it was the word soul. And I thought about and uh, thought about that and know them a little bit, and said, well, it's interesting. Do you really relate, uh, uh, you know, you've been involved in Buddhism for 30, 40 years, whatever it is. Um, do you really relate to the word aggregate? Kanda, skanda in Sanskrit. Um, or put the question in the past tense, did you really relate to uh, that word when you first heard it? Or really relate, or the words emptiness or anatta, no self, those kinds of words and concepts? Probably not. But what's happened, I mean, it might be sometimes with, with words like emptiness seem to have sort of pre, uh, what's the word, a sort of... Um, predisposition that many 
many Dharma folk have um, to that kind of an intuition, if you like, of that of that uh, insight and that whole direction and that whole teaching, even before one's re- you even encountered the teaching. Um, but the word like aggregate, um, it's hard to think that one would uh, really relate to that immediately when one when one hears it. Might be, but probably not. What has probably happened instead is one one has been trained and trained oneself to use words like aggregate as skillful and helpful concepts, and then perhaps even as as ways of looking. One has been trained in the use of a word like aggregate or a concept like aggregate as uh, trained to use them and think of them uh, in skillful and helpful ways. And they're not ultimate truths. This is something I've said many times. You know, five aggregates is not at all an obvious way of kind of dividing up a human being. And it's hardly, I would suspect, a kind of a way of thinking about self that one would have arrived at by oneself if one wasn't actually handed this teaching, five aggregates, and this is what they are. It was handed to us by someone in a position of authority, with the authority of 2,500 years of Buddhist tradition, and and then we trained ourselves in those words. So just the fact that one doesn't really relate to a word that one is not familiar with in itself means nothing much at all. Couldn't the word soul be uh, similarly unfamiliar at first, but eventually, with practice and understanding, actually become, like the word aggregate, very fruitful, like the concept aggregate. And in fact, even um, be... Uh, the word soul, the concept soul, be something that uh, contributes and supports to the reduction of particular sorts of suffering, just as the way aggregates does. That's what ag- that's what that's the function of the word aggregate. As it's not an ultimate truth. What the teachings of the aggregates do, or are supposed to do, or are designed to do, is just that. They're just a, a, a group of concepts in the service of reducing suffering. It's not an ultimate truth. And couldn't soul be just uh, something similar? Unfamiliar at first, but with, with training, with practice, as understanding grows, it becomes very fruitful as a, a, a term of vocabulary and a concept. Um, and fruitful in, in many ways, but in one particular way, uh, in reducing certain kinds of suffering. So the word, for example, the word aggregate will not, on its own, authentically and finally reduce the suffering of soullessness. For example, so again, if we open up, what does that, what does that first noble truth mean? What kinds of suffering are there? And therefore, what does the third noble truth mean? Ending suffering. We could say these days there is the suffering of soullessness in our society, in our culture. Suffering, and part of that is the suffering of meaninglessness. We could bag it all together as the suffering of soullessness. It's also to do with um, lack of beauty and aesthetics and 
lack of depth, lack of refusal of dimensionality, all kinds of things. But the word aggregate, on its own, will not um, finally, fully, and authentically reduce the suffering of, of reduce that kind of suffering of uh, the suffering of soullessness. In fact, it might even support it. The suffering of soulness may be worsened by the teachings on the aggregates if I'm not careful how I pick them up and, and if or when I put them down. So, I mean, we could choose other words as well. Even words like... Uh, um, Words like, you know, words from our contemporary culture, not from Buddhist culture, like trauma. Um, it's an idea, and it's a, actually it's a whole conceptual framework. So nowadays when we speak psychologically and we draw on that word and we use that term, um, uh, we're, we're, we're actually invoking and implying a whole, a whole conceptual framework of psychology there. Yes, I don't really relate to that. In other times, other cultures, um, other periods of history, it would have been a quite bizarre notion, or even just the the, the sort of broader notion of, say, for instance, um, uh, early or, or par- ex- parenting experiences shape uh, the psychology, uh, or are a dominant factor, but a dominant factor in the shaping of later psychology. Again, there's a whole conceptual framework, actually there's many conceptual frameworks, many alternate conceptual frameworks which overlap, that we're invoking when we even um, say words that point to that whole uh, that whole that whole idea and that whole uh, framework of ideas so it could be really really helpful but may not relate to it at first maybe very very useful these words borrowed from psychology and these psychological concepts and notions or even when we use the word brain. I mean, certainly in the Buddhist time, they were aware there was an organ in the middle of the head that was, uh, you know, they had their word for it. I've forgotten what the Pali is. Um, you know, they had looked at corpses and dissected them or whatever. But the way we use the word brain now, or the way many people in our culture use the word brain now as synonymous with mind, might not be uh, or definitely was not at all how the Buddha meant meant the word brain or mind as being something that was uh, necessarily um, uh, primarily physical even, or complete, certainly not completely physical. So there's lots of words and concepts. So at this, at this time in history, in culture, or at, at this time in my uh, evolution and my practice and my journey, I don't really relate to this word soul. So, so what? It doesn't mean that it cannot then be, uh, become with training a very useful, very fruitful, very freeing um, uh, idea, word, term of vocabulary and concept. Back to that word aggregates, you know. Um, the, 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 if it's well, e- even if it's just picked up as a as a as a kind of notion without much skill in using it as a way of looking in terms of anatta etc. As I would do, as I would kind of outline those that direction of practice, the anatta practice, it still functions to fabricate less. 
as a term of vocabulary, it, fa- it fabricates less suffering, it certainly fabricates less se- self-sense. It dissects and kind of undercuts self-construction, self-fabrication. Okay, so it might do that too at all different levels, let's say, depending on how much skill one has in actually practicing with that notion. But as a term, it's what it does, is it, it, it moves in the direction, it, it, it stimulates the direction of less fabrication, of suffering and of self, of, of some sufferings and of some levels of self, let's say. But in so doing, just that, in its movement towards less, towards fabricating less self, it at the same time, the, the other side of the coin is that therefore, therefore, it doesn't honor and respect and keep in focus or keep in sense the person, and the person as uh, someone in relationship in meaningful relationship. That gets lost. The minute we start emphasizing talk of the aggregates and a view of the aggregates, then we simultaneously lose sight of, lose sense of, the, 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 rich, uh, the richness and multidimensionality of personhood and the relationality of personhood. Again, I'm going back to that talk pretty sure it was the one on death and dying. Sort of thinking, what could we use this word person to mean, perhaps, when we're talking about um, a human subject, a human being that's more than subject because they're in meaningful relationship. And so they're more than just self. They're more than just... Um, they, they become a person. If we really want to honor and respect and keep in our sense, in our senses, and keep making sense of the personhood of a person. So they're kind of divergent directions or modes, the notion of the aggregates or the notion of, um, let's say, soul. Later on in Vajrayana um, teachings, um, there's the possibility of seeing the aggregates, the five aggregates, as divine, as holy. But even then, we actually lose the personhood of the person. It dimensionalizes in a different way. Each aggregate, depending on different tantras, each aggregate is associated with a different divinity, a different uh, Buddha or um, uh, Buddha's consort or Dakini or whatever. So there's a there's a wonderful kind of dimensionalizing and, and divinizing, divination, uh, divinizing that can come um, through that. But it still misses the person. Beautiful range of practices there. It still misses the person. So the term aggregates and the term soul almost do uh, almost mutually exclusive uh, opposite uh, instigate mutually exclusive opposite movements. So talk about soul, talk about angels, talk about all, all this, but in um, in dyadic practice, in soul-making practice, and even in some of these exercises, um, all 
all this that we're um, pointing to now when we when we talk about these different words and all the different shades and meanings and scopes and dimensions of what these words mean and what they point away from and where they point towards and what they open up all this kind of emerges naturally I would say um, through the process of sensing with soul and you probably experience if you've done dyad practice and at certain points who am I in relationship to here who is this other or a triad or who are these others and sometimes when we've been leading that on a retreat you're here on the recording sometimes we stimulate a shift in the sense towards um, sensing with soul towards sensing the other as angel others as angels just by asking the question, when there, when there is soulfulness, when there's soulfulness in the field, and then asking that question, who are these others? Who is this now that I'm beholding? But just asking the question in a field of soulfulness um, can stimulate a further opening of the sensing of soul. We begin to perceive other as angel. Other times we might deliberately suggest can you see them now as angels? Or did we just start speaking of these others as angels? Or a person makes that deliberate shift in their sensing and, and um, like deliberately calling, calling up an image, deliberately deciding to sense, see other as angel. But all these words, angel, soul, image, they imply an unfathomability. They also imply, going back to something I said earlier today, that a kind of, um, neither a simple singularity nor a simple uh, um, doubleness. So this, if I'm seeing this person as angel, I'm seeing them as neither simply single nor Double. They are usual Tom, Dick, or Harry, and Tom, Dick, or Harry's angel, or whatever. It's it's uh, there's a mystery in the kind of impossibility of um, finally dividing them up as one or two. This being that I'm encountering, this being that I'm sensing the soul. So, but all these words, when we use words like angel or soul or my soul or, or any time we talk about image, there's that unfathomability there. And there's this neither, um, neither one nor two, really simply, as well as implied in the words angel, soul, image, etc., the dimensionality, the divinity, the infinite echoing and mirroring. So that's, you know, infinite echoing and mirroring is... Uh, of the angel into this person's life and this person's life and this person's being as the infinite echoing and mirroring of the angel and the angel also um, uh, a mirror and an echo of the being in a kind of two-way back and forth echoing and mirroring each other the whole the mystery of that kind of um, sense and notion is also wrapped up in the sense of angel and soul 
as of course is also the imaginal middle way, neither real nor not real, the theatre-like quality. So when we use these words, um, angel, soul, just like image, all, all this is wrapped up there. And also eternality. So the angelic dimension is the timeless dimension. Perceive this person as angel. Perceive an angel without a, without a, um, uh, you know, just an image, or or the angel that I'm in relationship to, or the soul, etc. This um, implied is eternality, and so the angel, as we said again, I think in that talk on uh, death and dying, I think it was that one. Um, Angels not of space or time. The being of the angel, the dimension of the being of the angel, is not of space. It's not located inside me or next to me or behind me or wherever, above me, below me. But nor is it located in time. It's refracted, this angel, he, she, they are refracted into space and time. And there's a sense to of participation. The angel is something. We talk again, going back to examples. Okay, we need to reconnect with the angels. It's also a sense of reparticipating in something, or reconnecting with my sense of participating in something, and the mystery of that word. So when we use these words, all these, all these other words are, uh, all these other notions are kind of um, woven in. To, to the meaning of these words. It's become very rich words. Soul, angel, just like image. And again, uh, similar to the analogy I said about the, these, are, these words are like roads. They point in a certain direction, but that road goes on forever. And that's another way of saying all these words and concepts and perceptions, especially like soul and angel, they have soft and elastic edges. Actually, all those words like participation and divinity and um, eternality and all, all, all of them. Soft and elastic edges. And they will stretch. So our notion of what we're talking about when we say soul and angel, um, that will stretch over time. It will deepen. It will be deepened. It will be complexified. It will be variegated. As the sensing of soul um, is uh, encouraged as soul-making uh, goes on as a soul-making dynamic is allowed to do what it wants to do. Soft and elastic edges, they will stretch, they will deepen, complexify and uh, you know, variegate. So let's introduce, let's call it the fourth exercise. Um, we might consider it two exercises, so the, excuse me, the fourth and the fifth, or set of exercises, I don't know. And this one is, in fact, a dyad exercise. All these two are dyad exercises. And so I'll try and describe. Um, and the first 
if we take it as two exercises, the first one, uh, the first part, if you say, let's take two exercises, two parts, um, uh, uh, one exercise and two parts. The first part, uh, in in a dyad, and um, setting it up, whatever it needs to set that up, in terms of the terminus, in terms of the space, in terms of the presence. And in the first part, really, uh, one person in the dyad um, blesses the other, and the other person receives uh, the other's blessing. So one is blessing and one is receiving. Now we've done quite a bit of this in different ways um, in the past, but just want to add a few more pieces in there, a few more variations as well. So some of it will be familiar, and some will be um, maybe less so. Um, so one person is uh, it's their turn, they, they bless the other. And they bless them through um, movement, gesture, and voice. So, But what you cannot do as the blesser, um, is you cannot use any known language, any language known to human beings. So you can utter sounds, you can use your voice, but not any known language. Somehow you're conveying blessing and emanating blessing, expressing and manifesting blessing. So, one thing... um, here is, what does that mean, that word blessing? And again, back to what we just said about these words, soft and elastic edges, and it will grow and it will deepen. The meaning of the word blessing um, may already be very wide, but if it, it may, or it may not, it may start out, well, I'm not even sure what it means exactly. But it, it is potentially wide, deep, and multidimensional, and open and elastic, soft and elastic. So that we, as we um, practice more sensing the soul, and especially in relation to blessing and being blessed, we can hopefully create and discover more and more of what blessing might mean. So it might start, for instance, it might start as just meta. I'm not really sure about that word blessing, but I know what meta means. And I'm familiar with that. So it might just start as that. Okay, let it start as that. Maybe it includes um, praise. What they call uh, doxology is the fancy word. Words of praise. Doxology. Um, Or, in this case, movements, gestures, and vocalizations of praise. So maybe that's uh, a slight expansion from just the notion of meta. Start expanding. Maybe it includes that. Maybe it includes also gratitude. That in one's praise, there's gratitude wrapped up in it. Remember, again, I can't remember what talk it was from, but that word Eucharist um, actually means thankfulness, gratitude, I think, in Greek. Uh, but it may be that as we, um, as, as we either within this exercise, or as we repeat the exercise, or as we generally just do more soul-making practice, and our sense of 
soulfulness grows and the range of experience and ideation grows. Um, it may be that uh, this whole notion grows um, of, of what it means to bless and what it means to be blessed. And in the exercise, it might be that um, as we're doing the exercise, <clears throat> and the self, the sense of the self, the sense of the other, and the sense of the world, the environment, maybe even time or whatever, all that can become image. Maybe um, if I'm trying to, you know, use use my voice without language and trying to say trying to bless but without language and it might be that the sounds the words <coughs> um, they're not even words but um, the, the sounds uttered and heard become uh, image they become imaginal and who is blessing and who is blessed all this becomes image, and in, in so doing, it becomes imaginal image. Its, its meaning expands and deepens. It may be um, that there's... Uh, well, we can come back to that. So, uh, just in terms of the exercise, then, maybe, maybe um, you're, you're in a diet, you're facing each other, one person takes the first turn to be the blesser. The other, the job of the other is the one who is blessed. And they, their job, their task is twofold. Um, but it really has to do with just silent sensitivity and receptivity. And they want to notice <clears throat> they're looking at and listening to and opening their whole energy body. We've done all this kind of thing before. To open the whole energy body and all the senses open to the other and their blessing, and their movement, and voice, and gesture, open to the, the sound, and the visuals, and all the sense of the whole energy body in relationship with, sensing with the whole energy body, but then sensitive to one's own experiences, one's own experiences as the one who is blessed, and one's own experiences of the energy body. And that includes whatever emotions, whatever soul resonances, etc., are uh, arise and pass within that. So, for the one who's blessed, it's a task in sensitivity and opening the energy body and the senses to that really full, uh, uh, full relationship with the one who is blessing, and then tracking, noticing what happens in primarily in the energy body and the emotions as as this uh, as this person blesses you so one wants to establish that a really good energy body and emotional uh, sensitivity and awareness and then on top of that when that's ready probably that needs to be there before one then opens it up to including any sensing with soul or soul sense of the whole, uh, the whole relational field there, the whole experience of being blessed, the other, the self, the the moment, all of it. But in, but practically speaking, or at least from from all uh, from from the outside, so to speak, one is just silent and still, 
and open, and the task is one of sensitivity, the energy body and the emotion, and then in the soul sense. So one's not responding. Um, and then maybe after ten minutes, well, you can time it yourself, ten minutes might feel like a lot um, doing something like this. So it'll probably uh, be, it may be that this is really quite difficult, some people find it really quite difficult. They're a bit sort of baffled or stumped what to do, um, how to how to do this at all. Um, but hopefully it could also be fun. Uh, so a few variations to Thrones, but um, um yeah, let's say after about ten minutes, you can reverse roles, um, and maybe you need some silent meditation or something in between, perhaps to gather, and maybe not. You'll have to see. Um, ten minutes, as I said, may feel very long, um, or it may be that uh, you know it may feel very difficult and awkward, and one isn't quite sure, you know, what 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 to do and what to what sounds to make, etc. Um, or it may be that actually it needs it needs ten minutes or it needs a little longer to get going to get into a kind of groove because it because it's unfamiliar. So it may for some people it may not not be at all. But either way, even if it's difficult, hopefully it can be fun as well as uh, lots to discover there as an exercise. Um, So, if you're in the blessing role, then you can improvise your utterances. Improvise what comes through your mouth. Take your time. Um, it may be a very fast, there's a very fast flow or a very slow flow. It may be there's you know, pauses in, in between utterances or movements or gestures. Or that it's just continuous streams. Um, or maybe, you know, continuous stream, then a pause or, or whatever. It may be uh, loud or soft, you know. See if you can let your sense of any any soulfulness that's there, any sense of soul making, let that sense guide you. Just as we use that um, as a guide in in imaginal practice, etc. Um, and again, the uh, so you want to be feeling, sensing the energy body, the resonances in the soul and the energy body. You want to be putting, excuse me, as your blessing, your whole energy body in relationship with the other. It may be that you deliberately bring in or play with uh, the, the, the deliberate introduction of an image of yourself, that you you inhabit a certain image perhaps that you're familiar with or, or certainly that's arising at the time or an image of the other uh, a sensing the soul of the other or of the space you're in or as I said of the movements and gestures and utterances themselves that they uh, you bring in a deliberate images a deliberate imaginal sense of what they are It may be that there's uh, an image that you bring in that's a third, so that uh, this 
imaginal figure is somehow um, coming or, or if you like in touch with you and through you they are blessing the other but it's really coming from this so there's all kinds of possibilities here so for some people this is going to be really quite strange um, and may take a little getting used to may, may feel so may feel a little awkward others will just you know, uh, maybe not at all and it's just easeful and delightful and fun then a few variations okay so um, one is um, you can the only rule is no words you can make any movement or any gesture or any vocalization so any movement gesture or vocalization is okay but not words said so no language um, a second possibility is uh, no words and also no vocalizations. So you can only uh, use movement and gesture, no voice. Still, how you bless just through movement and gesture. What wants to come, what feels soulful there. Can I sense that, be in relationship and follow that thread? And a third possibility is... Um, no words, but no movements or gestures either, only vocalizations. Okay? So you've got movements, gestures, vocalizations, all okay. And then you've got only movement and gestures okay. And then you've got only vocalizations okay. So three variations. Sometimes it might occur to you to, you know, sing a melody um, if you're allowed to vocalize. And so that's fine. You know, maybe that's that's part of, you know, you hum or, or sing something that's part of the blessing. If you do do that, make sure that sometimes you try it without singing a melody, without singing anything. Just to, again, we're interested in really opening, opening up ranges here. Okay, now either the second part or uh, a separate exercise, we could conceive of them uh, either way. Like you could separate these, uh, this exercise number four into two separate exercises and do them at different times. Or you can kind of just segue one part in, into the next. But the second part, uh, the second exercise, would be then the same thing but dropping any idea of an attempt to express or convey some meaning. In other words, something that one could say in words. So even, even blessing, maybe something that one could, aspects of it could translate into words. But just, it's all, maybe it's just a second part. You're taking it to another another level, really. Dropping any idea of an attempt to express or convey any meaning. Something that could get put into words, or um, uh, or or an emotion. You're not conveying or expressing an emotion, or an image, or an event, or a story. my story or your story or whatever it is there's just 
movement, gesture, and voice, and dropping any sense of an attempt to express something with that, to convey something that means anything with that. So remember, um, we have the word, the element of the imaginal meaningfulness, and this also not reduced to a single meaning. So, what happens then if we uh, recognize soul is more than this or that meaning? Even if the meanings are important, even if the meanings are important to soul, soul is more than that meaning, than any meaning. And soul is also more than heart. So, what happens now? then um, also the notion of blessing may get uh, kind of altered or dropped. Does that make sense as an exercise? Let's see if there's anything else I want to say about that. And what happens in that second part, you know, then we could say we've gone, maybe we've gone beyond blessing in the usual sense. Because it's an interesting word, blessing, and I think, um, you know, it's sort of, occupies an area that's kind of at the edge of what could be put into other words. But in a way, in the second part of this exercise, we're just um, encouraging what we're doing through movement and gesture and voice to extend beyond the notion of blessing in the usual sense, because we've we're trying to drop any attempt at expressing or conveying any meaning or anything that could be put into words. Okay, I think that's it. So hopefully that's clear for that exercise. And um, I think I think we'll stop for today there. Um, and add fifth exercise at a different time. Okay, but hopefully that's enough to be going with and that makes sense and you can play with that. And as I said, it might feel very awkward, it might feel very, very strange for some people and maybe not at all for others, everything in between. It might feel difficult, it might, you might feel very self-conscious, all kinds of things. Um, but it might also be fun. But uh, wherever it starts, it can grow. And it might um, start, even it feels all very nice, and maybe you're used to it from different retreats that we've done to some extent. But then even from where it is there, it can grow and deepen and complexify and become a lot more subtle as well and involve um, a lot more sensitivity. 
So both on the part of the one who blesses and, the, and on the part of the one who is blessed. And to say maybe in the second part of this exercise we're even talking about something that's beyond the notion of blessing in, in the way that we usually use that word anyway. So there is just an exercise or there is just a dyad using movement, gesture, voice with the purpose of uh, the intention towards deepening sensitivity, extending range, and uh, being receptive to soul. Receptive to soul and, um, and a vehicle for soul. A vehicle of soul. And, and all that, that sensitivity and that um, opening up of what, uh, where we can sense soul and how soul can express through us and what we can recognize as soul. All that uh, becomes the main point and, and it, that has an extraordinary uh, range of subtlety that's possible there and sensitivity and growth and dimensionality. So that's really the that's a, a big part, range and depth, sensitivity and uh, including subtlety. Of course it doesn't have to be subtle only, but it can move into that territory more and more. So that's what this is for, that's the purpose of this, that's the uh, invitation. <clears throat> 